A River North hotel gets a lifeline from a Pennsylvania investor. And newly public pricing information could shake up the hospital industry. Crane's healthcare reporter Stephanie Goldberg joins the podcast today with more. And, and this new rule aims to increase market competition through price transparency. So ultimately, the goal is to make healthcare more affordable. But critics, um, and there are many, warn of unintended consequences. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Tuesday, January 19th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined now by Crane's healthcare reporter, Stephanie Goldberg, who recently wrote about how newly public pricing information at hospitals could shake up the healthcare industry. So tell me about this story, Stephanie. This was such an interesting story to report. I, I've been waiting for this data for a very long time, me and the rest of the healthcare industry, I guess. So under a new federal rule, um, actually took effect January 1st, hospitals are now required to publish the rates that they negotiate with specific health insurers. So not just like, you know, the list price charge masters that we saw trickle out last year. And, and this new rule aims to increase market competition through price transparency. So ultimately, the goal is to make healthcare more affordable. But critics, um, and there are many, warn of unintended consequences. So it will be interesting to see what happens as a result of this information being public. So one example that a lot of people cite is that hospitals with lower prices could look now at their competitors and, and raise their rates to match. So it could end up having the opposite effect. And um, and that's something that a lot of people who are anti-price transparency in, in the healthcare world will cite um, when you ask them. And then other people just stress the fact that the prices don't tell the whole story, which is true. You know, they, they don't include quality bonus payments for providers when insurers negotiate those. And, you know, they certainly don't, don't tell what a consumer or a patient, I should say, would pay out of pocket. And as you're going through the, re- the reporting that you've done in this, these numbers are, are so vast. I mean, the example that you give in the story is for a hip replacement. Not only does it vary from hospital to hospital, but even under different health plans, there could be different costs associated with that. How do healthcare providers reconcile that? Well, sometimes the prices differ based on the, the type of health plan. So like, I think that Northwestern example was maybe a Medicare Advantage plan compared with like a PPO. And, and so it's depending on whether, whether we're talking about a preferred provider organization uh, plan or a narrow network plan, like the prices will vary. Sometimes there's no rhyme or reason. Like there's a ton of data to come through and sometimes it seems fairly obvious as, as to why there is a difference. Sometimes the difference is so vast that there's nothing obvious about it. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think more information will come out once Smarter minds than mine come through this data and, and start putting putting things together for us to see from market to market how some of these these prices net out. And you mentioned unintended consequences, so I have to immediately wonder about how consumers are going to react to this information and how this might create uh, something like a price war with insurance companies. 
one of the hard things about this is that so many patients have so little say when it comes to who their insurance carrier is. And so, like, if you get your insurance through your job, for example, like like I do, um, you can't necessarily look and say, you know, this particular plan that I have seems to have higher rates with hospitals, so I'm going to move over to this other plan. In many cases, that's just not a choice that you have. So uh, in many ways, you know, some of the critics who have said that this rule will have no impact on consumers or on the prices that insurance companies actually negotiate with hospitals, there might be something to that. Um, you know, what's far more likely in a consolidating market is that whoever has more power chooses the rates, right? So we're seeing both insurers consolidate and also hospitals consolidate. And so it kind of depends on where you are to figure out who has more bargaining power. And, and I think that in the short term, at least, that's going to probably remain the case. In terms of this information and this new law that, that creates greater transparency around this, how easy is this information to find for consumers? Not easy. <laughs> um, there were a couple times, actually, where I couldn't even find it. And I'm like pretty good at Google. Um, and I had to reach out directly to hospitals and say, you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing your charge masters, but I'm not seeing the negotiated rates. And sometimes it's because they don't exist yet. Um, you know, these price disclosures are still, still trickling out. But sometimes it's because they're just so buried. And so I really don't anticipate that non-healthcare you know, market consumers are going to be looking through these to make any sort of purchasing decisions. But they are still trickling out, like I said. So be on the lookout. For example, Advocate Aurora Health, University of Chicago Medicine, and Edward Elmhurst Health, um, as of last week, had not complied with the law. Or the rule, I should say. And when I reached out, you know, I sort of got a, a very similar uh, response from everyone. And it makes sense. This is not a good time for hospitals. You know, there's a lot going on right now. They're battling a pandemic, a vaccine rollout. Um, you know, all that said, they've had time to prepare for this. But it really came at a, a challenging time for, for the hospital industry. And so I am curious to see how many uh, systems and, and hospitals will start to to put more of these out as time goes on. As you were doing the reporting for this story, what did you find most surprising about this? One was the fact that I somehow figured out how to read them. Um, they are very hard to read. Um, and there are so many different formats. So Cook County Health, for example, has like a very neatly organized Excel document. Um, and if you know, you know, the codes associated with, with different services, which I have to Google um, because I'm not a medical professional, you can fairly easily find the different prices. Some others, uh, like Northwestern Memorial Hospital, for example, had a really interesting document that almost you had to use like a key to figure out. And so, like I was saying before, like I really don't know how many sort of non-consultants or non-insurance companies are going to be combing through this data. I think, um, and, and some sources have said this to me as well, but when this information will become useful and whether that's in raising prices as one of the unintended consequences or lowering them um, as CMS intended, uh, that will be once some of the, the research groups get their hands on this data, health economists. So um, it kind of remains to be seen what people do with it. Yeah, that's exactly the question I wanted to ask next is now this information is starting to come out. What happens if you kind of look on the horizon? What are some likely outcomes that will come from the release of this? You know, one of the things I was checking Twitter this morning and uh, a health economist uh, who has been a great source in the past 
posted a link to the story and said, your move, Danish concrete fans, and it sort of made me chuckle. And I, I'll get into that. So in, in the 90s, the Danish government required concrete manufacturers to disclose the prices that, that they negotiated with customers. And as a result of that rule, prices ended up rising 15 to 20 percent. Um, and so it's, it's like an often cited example among health economists because there's really nothing else to compare hospital price transparency to. And so I think that's what a lot of people are sort of expecting to happen is like the most obvious thing to come of this will be you know, an insurance company will say, wow, my competitor is paying so much less for these same exact, you know, hip replacement, um, as is as the example with Northwestern that you referenced, I want more money. And maybe they'll get it, you know, and, and the effect that that has on consumers remains to be seen. Are out-of-pocket costs going to go up as a result? What about premiums? So there's just a lot that we need to watch. I'm as excited as anyone to see what happens. I hope it's not that prices go up. Yeah, I'm, I think we all are. So on that note, in addition to, I know you're going to be watching for other hospitals to be putting out their information so that you can dig in and decipher that. But what other aspects of this will you be watching most closely just in the next couple of weeks? Once other markets start putting out their price disclosures as well, I think we'll see some groups that we typically rely on for healthcare cost information will start to pull and we'll start to get a sense from market to market. So I, I only looked at the, the largest Chicago area hospitals um, and that's a very small subset. So I think it will be interesting to see how this compares to, you know, other large cities, rural areas. How does having more options or less options, you know, fewer options, how does that impact price? So I think I think once some of that research starts to come out um, and actually analyzing the differences market to market, I think that will be really interesting to see as well. The big follow-up for me is, you know, the Chicago area, like I mentioned, is consolidating quickly and it has been for years. And I'm, I'm so curious to get some insight into how that is impacting the, the prices that insurers are paying here. Indeed. Well, we will keep turning to you for the latest. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk today, Stephanie. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, Apple is reportedly eyeing a foldable iPhone. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back. I'm Cranes reporter A.D. Quigg, and you're listening to Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The Chicago developer that opened an extended stay hotel in River North a couple of years ago amid surging tourism in the city has struck a deal with an outside investor to help it weather the pandemic. Akira Partners recapitalized the Home Two Suites by Hilton Hotels on West Huron with an investment from Pennsylvania-based Hersha Hospitality Management. That according to sources familiar with the deal who spoke with Cranes. It's not clear exactly what prompted Akira to recapitalize the property, but the deal comes as many hotel owners struggle to stay on top of mortgage payments amid the COVID-19 crisis. With nearly 10 months of very little tourism and virtually no corporate demand while the coronavirus continues to impact the economy, many downtown hotel owners have suspended operations or face the prospect of losing properties to their lenders after falling behind on loans. 
The Home 2 Suites property kept its doors open during the pandemic, according to the CEO, but occupancy since March at downtown hotels that were open never rose above 27% for a single week, compared with a full-year average of 74% in 2019. That, according to data from hotel research firm STR. A venture led by Akira paid $3.7 million back in 2013 for what was then a vacant lot at the corner of Huron and Clark and secured a $53.5 million construction loan in 2017 to develop the hotel. That, according to Cook County Property Records. At the time, Chicago was right in the middle of a multi-year run of record-setting tourism numbers downtown when that work started and when the hotel opened in February of 2019. A local women-owned utility contractor, Intran, has named a new CEO. Sharina Mae Edwards, who's on the board of Intran, is taking over the position permanently after working as interim CEO since September, when the previous chief executive left for another role out of state. Edwards will also be the company's first black CEO and said diversifying the company's executive ranks is important to her. Other goals she names include growing the company through acquisitions and improving the company's branding. Intran, which is based in Union in McHenry County, grossed $600 million in revenue last year. According to Edwards, it has just under 2,000 workers nationally, including 300 in the Chicago area. And the company works with other utility companies like ComEd. Previously, Edwards was a partner at Chicago law firm Quarles & Brady. In 2016, while she was on the Illinois Commerce Commission, she was appointed by then-President Barack Obama and former U.S. Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox as co-chair of the U.S. Department of Transportation's Voluntary Information Sharing System Working Group. Former Gatorade, Walgreens, and PepsiCo executives are betting on a new protein water called Protein 2.0. The company launched its first vegan protein water products last month, and leadership told Cranes that it's aiming to tap into the growing base of consumers, adding plant-based products to their diets. Though the company is rather small compared to some of its protein drink competitors, Protein 2.0 is growing. Revenue in 2020 was up about 60% to roughly $30 million according to leadership, who also noted that as the pandemic hit the U.S. in March, Protein 2.0's in-store sales fell dramatically. However, the functional water market, yes, that is a thing, is expected to reach more than $18.2 billion globally by the end of 2025, up from more than $10.3 billion in 2017. That according to data from market research firm Fortune Business Insights. The U.S. market will likely lead that growth as sales of bottled sodas continue to decline and as the U.S. functional water market is already well established. Paul Earle, an adjunct lecturer of innovation and entrepreneurship at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business, told Cranes that now's a good time to be growing a functional water brand, saying that the space has already been growing for several years and consumers are conditioned to look for innovation and try new products. He also said he expects that since so many consumers had been gravitating towards known brands in 2020, 2021 will bring pent-up energy for experimentation. Apple has begun preliminary work on an iPhone with a foldable screen, a potential rival to smaller phones from Samsung and others, even though it's planning only minor changes for this year's line of iPhones. According to a source familiar with the work who spoke to Bloomberg, the company has developed prototype foldable screens for internal testing, but hasn't solidified plans to actually launch a foldable iPhone. And the development hasn't gone much beyond a display. 
The company is reportedly currently focused on launching its next round of iPhones and iPads later this year. But if it does happen, the move would be a pretty radical departure for Apple. Its pioneering, touchable, all-screen smartphone is one of the most successful consumer tech products in history. But another complication that could delay or nix the idea entirely is that the pandemic has also complicated product development, with Apple hardware engineers only working at the company's Silicon Valley offices a few days a week and in limited numbers, which has meant offloading work to Apple's engineers in China. And that's Crane's Daily just for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's healthcare reporter, Stephanie Goldberg. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.